Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and on this podcast I have long informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. You might be surprised to see another one of these episodes soon. For a while I had only been able to do them kind of monthly, about once a month, but uh, in this lockdown period I've actually been able to record them much more frequently because I can just record them, you know, online over some online platform, Skype or Zoom or whatever. Anchor also has an app, you know, that lets you do it. I put out a call a few weeks ago on Twitter to see if anybody wanted to record one of these remotely, record it online. And I did have a few volunteers. I'm really appreciative. I'm really thankful that I had a few of those volunteers. And one of the first people who stepped up and said, yeah, let's go for it, is Milan Kluver. That's the guest I'm talking to today. Milan is a PhD student at the University of Oxford. He identifies himself as a climate modeler on the on his Twitter. His Twitter you can find at Milan Kluver, where it's spelled M-I-L-A-N. This is this part's a little different. K-L-O-E-W-E-R. This was the first remote episode that I attempted during this lockdown period. So we tried Zoom at first. Zoom didn't work for some reason. It has been working subsequently, but it didn't work. So we switched to a different recording app and had more of a phone conversation. So we only had the audio. We couldn't actually see each other. So that made the dynamic a little bit different, made it a little bit, uh, you know, sometimes harder to know when the other person was done talking. But I think it came out fine. I think it was a good conversation. We talked about remote conferences. We talked about the shutdown and the lockdown, of course. We talked about posits, which is an interesting, different way to represent numbers that Milan has been looking into. We talked about the Julia conference, the sorry, Julia language, not Julia conference, the Julia language, which is uh, we go into to that. That's some um, interesting stuff. And we also talk about open review, open peer review, and we. We do talk a bit. We go into his pathway into science and what that has looked like so far for him. I do. I should warn you that there is a bit of noise in this episode. We were talking over this uh, app, and I'm not sure if we had some microphone issues, but there's a little bit of crackling, a little bit of static, and it's not too too bad. But you will notice it here and there. You'll notice some crackling and static. So, so yeah, I tried to clean it up the best that I could, but. Um, It's there. You know, you can't totally get rid of that stuff, I don't think. At least I'm not aware of a way to totally get rid of it once it's in your recording. Uh, Yeah, there's not a lot to say up front. I'm going to try to put these out more frequently, maybe once a week, but don't don't tie me to that. I'm going to do my best. So, like everybody, I'm juggling many different kind of responsibilities and trying to figure out how to navigate the lockdown stuff. I'm just going to keep it really brief and get into it. So I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter. If you want updates for the podcast, follow at ClimateSciPod. And again, Milan is at Milan Kluver, spelled K-L-O-E-W-E-R. He has a website, and that's Milank.de. So that's just spelled M-I-L-A-N-K dot D-E if you want to learn a bit more about Milan's projects. So I'd like to say a big thanks again to Milan Kluver for reaching out, for stepping up and volunteering. This is the first 
remote one that we did. I'm, I'm releasing these a little bit out of order, just based on my kind of production schedule that I've been able to put together. But uh, yeah, big thanks again. And thanks to David Marshall for the signal boost. He helped get the word out there a little bit more. Okay, I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Talk to you later. Here we go. Hey, Dan. I can hear you. Oh, great. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, perfect. Now, hooray! Okay. Yeah. No, no idea what was wrong there with Zoom. <laughs> no, that was strange. Yeah. Thanks for being patient because yeah, uh, that our our UKRI one it seemed to even have the Zoom button, and you know with the other one the audio just completely failed. So that that was just just uh, strange. Yeah. Good. But we got it working out. We we sorted things out. Mm-hmm. Um. So you're over in uh, Oxford at the moment. Yes, exactly. Doing home office, as uh, everyone is currently forced to do so, right? Yeah, doing the, the self-isolation thing. Yes, and, uh, exactly. I mean, it does. I mean, it feels a little bit isolated, right? Because you don't really go anymore to see friends or go to, like, restaurants and pubs and so on. But, I mean, especially in Oxford, because, the, I mean, it's not London, right? So in London... Uh, I've seen, like, still today from Twitter, I've seen pictures where, like, the tube is incredibly crowded. And it's like, wait, how is that How is that still a thing? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, I wonder if that's just, are there still a pretty, is, is there still a pretty high density of people who are just required at their jobs who are being forced to to go in or exactly it's because it's because the government is not uh not shutting down non-essential um uh, businesses Hmm. right and i mean many many of these businesses i've seen like people commenting on that where they say like please just officially shut us down because then we can actually um contact our insurances and basically get money back if you just tell people to not come then we can't do that. And so the question of, yeah, organizing it. Yeah. Okay. So I see in the event of a, like a large scale kind of government issued shutdown, they could go to their insurance companies and say, well, that, that was out of our control. We didn't have any. Exactly. 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 And that's exactly what the, yeah. Insurance is supposed to to be for. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that, that perspective. I've been, it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, I've been trying not to look at Twitter too much because that can be just this kind of black hole that you can fall down. <laughs> you're, you're not. <laughs> it's a very deep black hole, yes. <laughs> but uh, but I am looking at it some, and I am getting new information sometimes and new perspectives like that one. You know, um, hope, hopefully, reasonably good perspectives to have in my head. I hope I'm not yeah. uh, filling it with garbage, although there is garbage out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, some, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between <laughs> garbage and good information. Yes, um, that's what looking at the looking at the sources for. Yeah. So, how are you? How are you holding up in the in the isolation so far? Yeah, I think I'm a very uh, lucky situation because I live in a big house with uh, we're we're technically seven seven people, so it doesn't actually feel that isolated. Basically, just feels like having holidays at home with your friends slash housemates and 
we are quite uh, well stocked up on food in general anyway because we just do these big um, bulk deliveries. And so there was like in terms of prepping for the crisis, there was actually no prepping necessary. <laughs> right. Um, that made it really easy, and yeah. So we're currently like thinking about yeah, what can what can we do in terms of like to keep us happy? Like, do we all go for for runs together? Do we go on like cycle rides over the weekend? Right. So I mean, you still want to get out, enjoy the nature, especially because the weather is supposed to be really nice on the weekend. But uh, I mean, I don't know. Going to London and then taking the tube is definitely not one not a thing that I would do anymore. Right. No. No, not definitely not. Yeah, that sounds all right. And uh, in terms of getting outside and you know at least having some people to talk to, you yeah, know, that yeah, exactly. Situation. I know um, some of my colleagues. We've been having kind of morning coffee break and afternoon coffee break on you know various webinar platforms here and there, and that's been it's been nice. It's been good to good to see people in that capacity, you know, even remotely. Yes, and. Uh, we uh, we kind of keeping keeping that rhythm going, keeping that sort of sort of um, pattern going, trying to figure out what the new new normal is. Yeah. And, uh, try to I'm I'm here with my wife and my kids, so my kids out of school already. You know, he got signed out early because of his asthma. So um, we are trying to figure out the two working parent, one kid in school thing, and uh, it's it's going so so. But I I think we're having to be very, very patient with each other and very understanding. And, you know, I, I think it's good to recognize that we're just not going to be as productive in this period. Right. I mean, some mm -hmm. people you know, in, in a strange situation where their productivity absolutely is going to go down and that's, that's fine. That's to be expected in such a bizarre period, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if you're feeling talked out about all this stuff because I guess it's, it's has been the, most of what people have been yeah. talking about the past week so yeah. you know, we could take a little break from that and just talk about science and whatnot that would be fun we could yeah as up. you like i'm really happy to talk about both i find these uh structural changes actually quite interesting because it tells us a lot about uh what works well and what doesn't work well in the society right yeah i'd like to hear your thoughts on that if you're happy to, to go on that and tell me know what, what have you noticed yeah um well, one of the one of the interesting aspects I find is that um, somehow this crisis really brought an end, or like not necessarily an end, but like a um, kind of like a, a stop to populism, because the virus basically doesn't care whether you uh, lie or whether you actually tell the truth. It will just like keep on going until you actually act, right? Um, and so I have the feeling that actually the countries worldwide that are yeah, that have a more central, uh, more centrally structured, uh, are less like focused on, on on capitalism. Actually, doing better in these in this crisis than others. So I'm actually really worried. For example, what's going to happen in the U.S. because of their health system being so incredibly capitalistically organized that um, it can be very very vulnerable to exactly these these types of crises where. No, actually, actually, everyone needs to get tested. Everyone needs to get um, a treatment in order to keep the risk uh, low for everyone else, right? I'm obviously like interested in how this all evolves. Uh, also scared of how this evolves, but also interested in terms of um, what will we take out of this, right? So let's say jumping two years from now, 
when we look back at this, like, oh yeah, coronavirus that like made a big change in how we structure our societies, or whether we just like fall back to whatever we've done before. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That you know, we could very well just just end up going back to what we did before um, once the kind of crisis period has passed, however long that is. But uh, uh, it, it does present a really interesting kind of unique opportunity to maybe have some of these longer, these larger conversations about, you know, do we, do we have to fly as much? You know, we were able to cope. You can kind of point, might be able to point back to this period and say, well, we coped with less flying, you know, a couple of years ago, looking into the future and imagining us looking back at now, yeah. you know, we coped with less flying, we coped with kind of, you know, less travel overall. Um, you know, it, it, that, that can work out. Okay. Um, well, hopefully that's the position we'll be in anyway. Maybe I'm being optimistic, but um, but I see what you mean. You know, it's a big perturbation to our economic and our social system. And we'll get to see you know, how the whole system re- responds to the perturbation, right? Yeah, exactly. It's um, I think especially when it comes to virtual communication, there's, uh, there's a lot we will learn. And uh, even though we probably... Um, um, the strongest part of this of this self isolation is over. We will probably, obviously, like we will take up the, the things that we did before and enjoyed, especially in, in company, like going to pubs and so on. But um, we definitely will look at differently. Is the right really this necessity of travel, right? I mean, I know a lot of other uh, PhD students that have their projects all over the world, and currently they can't fly, right? So once they will, when once they're able to 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 get out into these countries again. They will, uh, well, they will have to do so in order to get their data, in order to get to do their research to actually finish their projects. However, all this, like, let's say, um, this different academic travel that is on a completely different category of necessity, um, that will definitely be looked at differently. Because, like, is it, because people are basically now forced to experience how virtual communication can actually work. I don't want to know how many people signed up for Zoom in the last weeks, but I'm probably sure that it's uh, as exp- or it might actually be as exponential as the as the spread of the virus. Um, and so there will be also a lot of like big industry now evolving from that, trying to offer um, virtual communication as 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 good as possible and to 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 meet all the demands that are out, out there in the world in terms of yeah doing all this let's say less necessary travel that we've done before just in order to like talk to people, exchange ideas, get people to know, um, share our research results and so on and so forth. And we might just say like, well, I could fly there for a week. And let's say once a year, that's really good to like get out of your, of your usual habits to do something new. But for many other of these conferences that are in our schedules every year, um, we might just say like, uh, can we not just do this virtual? I mean, we've done it last year anyway so uh we can just do this virtual might be more efficient anyway and then uh we have everything live recorded automatically archived and there's so many so many advantages to 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 virtual conferences and meetings that i think we will now as we're forced to we will only explore now and uh actually then only start to appreciate them yeah no, i like that i like all of those points i'll i'll play devil's advocate just a little bit just for the sake of the conversation but... <laughs> yes but, you know, one of the things that you miss out on in a virtual conference is that you don't have those kind of random 
encounters in the hallway. You don't run into, you know, old colleagues that you haven't seen in a while. Uh, you know, I went to AGU Ocean Sciences and, uh, you know, ran into and, and people that I had worked with before and hadn't seen in a while. And I had also, uh, I met a couple of people just because they happened to be around, happened to be there. And um, those interactions, those kind of chance interactions have now led to some very nice email chains, which have the potential to, you know, lead to some actual work and some, you know, some nice projects and things. And so I guess that's one thing that the kind of virtual arrange, the virtual arrangement uh, hasn't figured out yet or might not really be able to replicate. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It, uh, when we're thinking about the advantages and disadvantages of kind of online versus in-person meetings, um, I wonder, what, what do you think about that? What, is, is that something, should we just be prepared to have less of that and be prepared to kind of give that up for the advantage of uh, um, you know, having all of our meetings recorded and you know well well documented and preserved for the future, and I've I've kind of asked a leading question, but that's that's fine. I'm just I'm just wanting to put quarters in your jukebox basically and let you talk for a <laughs> bit. <laughs> yeah, I think um, so. I, I think I joined Twitter maybe like two years ago, or so and my experience actually of such a social network as. As Twitter and Twitter is much more open than Facebook because Facebook always relies on this like you need to meet a person first uh, in real life and then you get become friends and then you uh, you, sh you share you share some of your real life then also virtually whereas Twitter works differently right you can just follow people and um, you suddenly create a virtual network that has no real um, analog right um, and so after these in these two years I realized that no, there is actually a lot of exactly these random, you meet people randomly. And I have the feeling that it's actually, once you go virtual, it's much more efficient. Um, okay, Twitter has this whole structure around hashtags. So, yes, if you follow certain hashtags, you, you follow certain um, people, then you will always see the tweets by other people that also follow them, right? So you automatically have this filtering of like, um, you only see basically there's basically an algorithm that tries to um, show you exactly the content that you might find interesting and in yes in, in, in real life you have this you still can have these like you randomly bump into each other at like at the coffee break or so but you don't really like people don't run around with like a flag on their head saying like I'm interested in data science or like yeah. I'm interested in, uh, in in another field and so it's much like it's much harder on a on at an actual conference and especially the big ones where there's a lot of different uh, fields coming together to actually find the people that might be really interesting to you yes you always end up in a situation of like oh yeah I would have never met that person but I think virtually you could have probably met three more people just by just by looking at the probability probabilities are more likely to work in your field and work on the topics that are relevant to you. And so I think there's, um, yes, we don't really have the experience with that yet, but I think there's a, there's a huge network you can actually create uh, entirely virtually. And um, I mean, Twitter is just one example, and there's, there's loads of other examples, uh, for example, on GitHub, 
where you just like you see like someone published a project and you're like this is really good that fits incredibly well with, with uh, the stuff that I'm doing so you like create an issue you start contributing to the project and you can basically you completely take away this getting to know each other and you basically directly confront projects um and so your collaboration completely jumps over this awkward moment of like um meeting someone in the coffee queue and saying like hey uh sorry what's your name right and uh, i think there's there's a lot we can we can learn from that and i hope actually that i mean i'm not i'm not someone who would say then uh well i'm never going to stand in a coffee queue anymore because uh i can simply do it on twitter but i think there's probably a lot we can learn from the virtual world and then project it into the real world uh, like we don't tend to run around with you know hashtags on our shirt <laughs> and exactly here's three four or four things that i'm potentially interested in that's, yeah, that's a good point that Twitter is sort of set up. And I've got to admit, I have found science Twitter to be really useful for meeting people and for getting a sense of different communities. And, you know, of course, like we were just saying earlier, there's also so much, you know, garbage out there. You, you have to be careful about selecting, you know, who you're following. And you have to kind of learn that skill of navigating the junk to get to the good stuff but it, it can be it can be done you can do it uh, yeah it, it's like a skill you have to learn so this kind of makes me think about how if we really we fully move into the this world of relatively few online conferences a lot of activity on twitter and github and online via video conferencing then it it means that all of those ways that we put ourselves out into the world will carry this extra, this extra weight, this extra kind of importance of like, well, you got to have a good Twitter, you know, profile and you've got to have a website and you've got to have your GitHub repository up. And it, it's just the balance, doesn't it? In terms of, you know, if, if you're a, if you're a friendly person who's easy to get along with, that's, that's great. Um, but if you don't have this online presence, it's almost like, I wonder if there's a, you know, a danger of, oh, you're getting left out of this kind of tornado of activity and this new way that the <laughs> is kind of organizing itself. I, I see your point, but I think there's, um, like, if we go to a conference, we, we think that the conference is inclusive because we judge the inclusivity just by the people that are already at the conference, right? But by doing mm -hmm. so, we actually leave out a lot of people that can't even attend the conference, right? So you have... People from the from the global south that don't get travel visas, that don't have the time, the money, that people that uh, look have to look after the kids, the families that can't uh, that can't simply attend. And um, it's like the, our current conference format is is a system that largely benefits, um, especially uh, old white men, right? So it's this it's this cliche of like. Um, yeah, it's like a self-sustaining system because then the the established research researchers they will go. Um, they have the travel money to go, and so you basically always create this bubble among those people. However, virtually, I think there's a there's a lot more. This um, yes, you you need to have all these presences of like in terms of like different different social media accounts. But I think there's um, um, bottom line, it's actually more inclusive than. Um, if you, if you if you compare it to a traditional conference, especially because on a traditional conference you um, you have a big advantage if you're an extrovert and uh, you really have problems if you're an introvert and you find it really difficult to like easily open up with someone that you've just like randomly met and you kind of always rely on 
your supervisors, for example, um, introducing to you to someone who might be interested, right? Um, okay. Or you on like traditional conferences, you often have to do your 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 preparation in advance, meaning that you you basically look at the sessions and you check like, oh, that might be interesting. Oh, yeah, maybe this person, maybe I want to talk to that person. Oh, that person is 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 around two. Maybe I should talk to that person, right? Whereas if you if you put everything online, it's um. It's a bit more dynamic, right? You can you can you can you can see. Oh, this person was just publishing this 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 nice blog article, um, paper, white paper, whatever. And you can you can quickly look up. Oh, is that person interesting for me, or is it not? Um, and so I think really in the end, the virtual world might be uncomfortable for many of us especially the ones that find the traditional conference model very comfortable mm -hmm. um but the the virtual world is actually more inclusive and more easier to access for everyone else who the current uh conference model just leaves out yeah that's a great point i really like that it, it did it also made me think about though as, as a as a very mild uh, not a counterpoint, but just as a very mild, uh, let's step over here and look at it from this angle. It got me thinking about how at present, like you said, you sort of have to go through these established social networks. Um, and I guess as we you know, move further into this, into the online kind of setup, the, uh, the, the presence of, and the importance of algorithms is going to be, it was going to be something we'll have to contend with, you know, because the, the algorithms, like Twitter's algorithm determines what do I show this person? You know, whose yeah. posts do I, do I flag up? Yeah. So the, you know, the, the companies that host these platforms are going to have a, a role in how like science comes together in that online way, just by shaping their algorithms, which decide who, who do we show what to. Um, and yeah, you, you can go searching for stuff, of course, but, the, the random element of it. Um, it's just interesting to think about how, you know, before uh, in, in the traditional conference model, it was about wandering around and who would you run into. And in this new setup, that there's actually a third party involved with, you know, deciding you know, which post to flag up. I'm not saying that's, that's a, like a, a plus or, a, or a positive or a negative. I'm just saying that's an interesting kind of bit that's now thrown into the mix mm. um, with, with the virtual conference thing. I noticed that, um, yeah, the, the European Geosciences Union, they're going to shift their annual meeting this year to online. Yes. Uh, and I don't oh, think they have to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because Austria has banned gatherings of more than five people or something like that, right? Yeah. So I think, yeah, they have to, um, if they're going to do anything at all. It's uh, So they, they decided not to cancel it entirely. They still wanted to go ahead and do it and uh, in some, some form. And they've had to put it together really quickly, but uh, I, I don't have a lot of details. I mean, I don't know if you know anything more about it. I suppose we all received the same email, any of us who happen to have the EGU abstracts in. Mm -hmm. uh, they basically said that, you know, we're going to keep all the abstracts and there will be some platform that you'll be able to participate on. So. Yeah, it will be it will be interesting to see what happens with that. Yeah, I think um, so. I also only saw the saw the, the saw the tweet by EGU. I mean, EGU is kind of in a in a well compared to other conferences that are basically happening now in March. I have like obviously a big advantage because they still have two months to 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 well pull something uh, out of the hat and yeah create something from uh, which they haven't done before. 
which is, I mean, as a side note, I find it a bit sad because, I mean, I've been advocating for like EGU to go more virtual for uh, for a bit more than a year now. And um, uh, I've been last, last year to, at EGU and we basically said like, hey, how difficult is it to have at least like remote speaking? Remote speaking is uh, is technically super easy to set up. Uh, it's not, uh, it doesn't cost anything. And um, they basically, EGU was very careful with this because they basically first wanted to develop a somewhat uh, feasible business plan around a virtual conference and the problem obviously is that if you if you, if you go from um, entirely uh, an entirely real conference into like a blended conference where you have some aspects being virtual some being some some being actually people being on site to like entirely virtual conference in this transition zone you there might not be a good it might be much harder to find a, a good business model for the for the blended conference than for the entirely virtual conference right because you still have to book the big conference venue uh where's not many not as many people might show up or you might have uh a lot of people that are not willing to pay but then using all of the servers for for video chats and video conferencing and so now they're basically in the situation where well, they either have to do it fully virtual or they can't, right? And I think this is a big opportunity now these uh, in, in these like coming months now for conferences because nobody will really blame them if they don't do it 100% well. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously previously everyone would have said like, oh, v- uh, EGU is going virtual, that might be cool, but everyone would have been a bit careful about, oh, is it, gonna, is it actually going to work? And people would have still traveled to, to, to EGU and still therefore caused all these CO2 emissions. But now in this situation, basically, even if EGU makes conference that is, let's say, only 50% uh, good, right? And people say like, hey, this, there were some parts that really worked well and other parts that didn't work well. I think there's still a big opportunity from, from such a big conference to, to learn from that. And then really to like after, the, after this virtual conference to say like, okay, what are the things that we have to work on for the next year? Now we basically have gained so much experience in this, uh, we could even think of like a blended form. So I think this is a very, very, um, very interesting moment for, for, for virtual conferences because, yeah, they're basically like all these virtual, all these conferences are now, they basically have now like a free try of like, yeah, let's just uh, try. We can make it as, as good as possible. Uh, then we can, we can just take these experiences into the next year. That's right. It's almost... It's kind of like the perfect time to, to try it. I mean, unfortunate that it's under kind of negative, you know, rather negative circumstances. But in terms of the practical side of it, it's the perfect time to try this. Because like you said, people will be more forgiving and more understanding that if everything doesn't work out so well. Uh, and we're basically in a situation where you have to go virtual if you want to do anything. It's either virtual or cancel pretty much at the moment. So it's uh, it's it's forcing a lot of organizations to, to give it a try. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. I, th- I think there's also, there's definitely, I mean, yes, many people these days speak about this pandemic as if it's over in two months. And mm-hmm. that might be well true, depending on what measures the, the politics actually implement. And uh, I mean, if we look at China, they basically really seem to be over the peak. And there kind of seems to be that they're now in a situation that they can already lift some of the um, isolation measures that they've uh, implemented. But I mean, the risk of another pandemic will be from like from now on into the next decades will be there, right? So 
basically means for conferences, they always have to have a plan B, a virtual plan B that they can just pull out of the hat if they, if they need to. Right. And so I'm kind of thinking that because now they're forced to in the future, they're basically, they always need to have this plan B. So why not integrate the plan B into the plan A right away? Yes. Yes. And you were saying that, you know, that it could carry on for a decade because basically until a vaccine is developed and deployed on a large scale, like this, this virus is kind of in the population and will, will continue to be on at some level, you know, until that vaccine is, is developed. Yeah. And yeah. And that that takes a lot of time and a lot of, a lot of development and a lot of testing, but uh, yeah, no, that's a good point about incorporating you know, this virtual element as, as an option. Mm. It's kind of, you know, a nice, a nice time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say about the virtual conference stuff. I did want to ask you about some of your science work and, you know, you're kind of a, a bit, of, if you've got some time, your, your pathway into science and what that's looked like so far. Yeah. But yeah. I'm very well to switch the topic a little bit. Cool. Yeah. So I noticed you, you, you appear to be a, a proponent of the Julia language. Is that fair to say? Yes, exactly. I somehow was, it was more by chance that I got into Julia. And um, I'm actually now, I, I do everything in Julia. Um, and I find it a great language that, um, yeah, solves a lot of problems that are currently around in the whole climate science, but also in, in, and also in other fields. Um, I yeah. don't know anything about it, really. Um, I've heard some mysterious rumblings about it, but uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with it overall. Feel free to start from the beginning. You know, I'm not really familiar with it at all. And for the listeners too, you know, you can kind of introduce us to, to Julia. We haven't really talked about it before on here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Julia is a very interesting project because it um, it started at uh, MIT about ten years ago, and I think it was basically the PhD thesis of uh, well, one of the co-founders. And um, it basically has this philosophy of okay, we had now many, many decades of scientific computing. Let's take a step back. What have we learned from all the languages that are out there in the world? What worked well? What didn't work well? And um, they basically then tried to create a language that takes all the best bits from the existing languages and pull them together into one coherent framework. And uh, this is what Julia is. Julia is still fairly new, so only... One and a half years ago in summer, they released one point, uh, version 1.0. They really, they, they claim a lot. I'm still convinced that they can actually, they actually meet many of the, of the claims that they've put out in the beginning. And so Julia is this language that solves the two language problem. So many of our science nowadays works such that we have our climate models written in, in Fortran. And then we use languages like R or Python to analyze the data. And so for the model for you as a, as a, as a not mod, model developer, but as a normal climate scientist is, is always more like a black box. You can change a couple of parameters, but then you press play and then uh, you get your result and then you analyze the result and you can't really interfere with what's actually happening inside the model um, because of this two language barrier. There's obviously, a, there have been a lot of efforts to kind of glue languages like Python and Fortran together to kind of have a, like a more seamless uh, connection of the two. But Julia exactly solves, solves that problem. So Julia lets you write code in a way that it is uh, as fast. So it's 
can be as fast as CL Fortran if you if you know what you're doing. But even if you don't know what you're doing, Julia will still be many times faster than Python and uh, is at the same time still very intuitive. And because it's so intuitive, you can use it uh, with like Jupyter notebooks and so on. It is still a very productive language. So you can quickly write some code down and uh, most of the time it just works. And this is obviously, this is not necessarily an experience that uh, people, especially if they start working with, let's say, C or Fortran, uh, what people have. So I've just came to to Julia because there was one package that at the at the time when I started my PhD was just available on Julia, and I was like, "Yeah, let's give it a try. Let's uh, let's uh, see how Julia works." Well, since then I basically converted everything that I do into Julia because um, I just realized that this is exactly the language that I need for my PhD. So my does, yes. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, how does it manage to run? much faster than, than Python, for example. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of different paradigms that in Julia that come together. One of these paradigms is the just-in-time compilation. Python itself is an interpreted language, right? So that means whenever you execute code, the interpreter will basically take a line, uh, interpret it, and execute it. And then we'll go to the next line, interpret it, and execute it. Whereas uh, Julia does then this, this just-in-time compilation, which applies to any function, and also every single loop, so that it means that the first time you execute um, a function, it will be slower than you might expect, because it's basically the compiler then reading through, checking what kind of variables are you creating, how are you allocating memory, and uh, basically tries to compile it all into one uh, binary code. The next time you then execute the function, it is just super fast, because uh, previously, this this function was compiled. Um, there are similar approaches in, in Python. You have these like JIT compilers, JIT just in time compilers in, in, in Python too. But Julia is just just works like that. So there's no way to just have an interpreted Julia. You always you always compile it that way, which makes us also. And this is where I think things get will be uh, really interesting into the future, which makes the code really portable because. I've I've heard a lot of people like um, complaining about the, the the typical big models, ocean models, for example, like Nemo or MIT GCM. And if you want to use them on a certain machine, you first have to compile them, and you have issues because certain libraries do not exist, and so on and so forth. And you always have to make sure that something is compiled to um, the computer that you're using or the cluster that you're using. And because Julia moves this whole compilation to they basically execute, and then only the compilation happens um, before it produces you the result. Julia has this advantage that it is actually very, very portable. And you can, and I find one of these projects is the Oceanenigans project, which is um, an ocean model that is currently developed at MIT. And um, they have basically, they also basically as a test bed, they wanted to try, can we write a climate model or like a, a component of a climate model? in a language such that we can just change one flag, you just change from CPU to GPU, and then your whole model will be compiled onto a completely different architecture. And uh, yeah, they actually realized with Julia, this is possible. They can have, they can, they, they can have people that just work on the, on the algorithms, and then there will be um, 
and no matter what they do it's super it's super intuitive they just say like uh, this loop should be executed on a gpu and then this 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 loop will be compiled such that it is very efficient uh, to be run on on gpus and so they basically have a have a have a model now that if you happen to have a, a gpu or a cluster of gpus you can just run the entire model on gpus um which you can't at the moment you can't do that with fortran especially because things are more and more developing towards machine learning there will be new hat hardware that is um released julia then has this potential to be very easily adaptable to new exi existing hardware that is something that the old traditional languages like c and fortran don't easily do that way that's pretty incredible i mean i'd have to see it in action i think to to get a better sense of what you're saying because you know i'm i'm still in the what is i guess now the the older modeling paradigm of you know you compile a bunch of fortran for mit gcm for example and yeah. you know your your compiler flags and i guess i'm surprised to hear that it that it works so well because i'm so used to compiler errors and oh you haven't linked this properly and this yeah. it needs to find this library and yeah. um, you know i'm just kind of used to that world of compiling being this kind of rather clunky messy business yeah. so it's yeah. uh it's interesting to hear that it's done in this kind of dynamic on the fly way and is actually successful I, I mean i'm sure there's still issues with it right i mean i'm sure that you know there, there must be like library issues. you must run into some of the same things that you do with regular compilation is that fair or um sometimes you do but my so when I before I started working with Julia, I used to work with Python, and every now and then you run into these environment problems where somehow there are some conflicts with the different packages that you have installed. And actually, since I used Julia, like for the last three years, I never ever ran into a single problem with conflicts in my package environment. I'm, I mean, I haven't I haven't looked that deep, deeply into how their package manager is set up, but um, I think it is just. Julia just has a very big advantage because um, a lot of people have tried different things and now they can just basically do cherry picking and just pick the best bits. And I mean, Python existed before uh, a, a package manager like PIP or Conda existed, right? Whereas for Julia, they obviously said when they developed it, okay, we want to have a language that directly comes with the package uh, manager because we know we will need this in order to create a stable environment for everyone to work in. It directly comes then with uh, one forum where you're supposed to ask questions. There's one Slack channel that basically helps as a, as a uh, serves as a help desk. I mean, back in the days, we've just seen a language as the compiler itself, and then you, yeah, whatever code you write, you just compile it, and that's that's it. But nowadays, we know that programming languages are actually way more than that. And you have to even think about the whole, how you keep the whole community happy and how you can uh, can make sure that they are communicating in a very efficient way. And because Julia is such a new language, they basically, they realized that this is super important. And they basically just pulled all these different pieces together and therefore created a very efficient uh, environment. And I mean, just as an example, I find it I find it amazing that I've I've tried that um, um, a couple of weeks ago to install this uh, this ocean model or shenanigans on my ten year old MacBook. It's literally it's just, it's a one line of code. You just say add ocean shenanigans, you hit enter, and the whole 
framework is set up in a way that it immediately knows which other packages to install. It installs all these packages for you because the developers of Oceanagans are forced to uh, exactly specify the compatibilities with other packages. It knows exactly which packages to download for you. And I can, I can literally execute Oceanagans, although it's going to be really, really slow, on my, on my 10-year-old la laptop. You know, I've been resistant to the idea of learning like another language. Yeah, many people are, and this is—I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's one of the big problems, right? You get locked into one specific language, but yeah, that's—it's definitely there. That's a big problem. Well, I was gonna, yeah, I was saying that I just got into the whole Python world a couple of years ago. You know, even that is relatively new for me. So when I saw you know Julia kind of taking off a little bit, I will admit to having a bit of a feeling of like, oh, another one. Oh, geez. Yeah. but you. Know, you're selling me on it. You're you're starting to you're, you're starting to convince me. Mm -hmm. um, having the integrated package management sounds really good, and uh, you know, having that kind of quick access to GPUs sounds really good as well. Yeah. Uh, that's a world I haven't really really gone in. So you're you're being an, an effective spokesman, uh, effective spokesperson right now. You know, I'm I'm <laughs> my needle is moving over a little bit. Like, oh, yeah. maybe glad glad that I'm not selling a product. It's all open source. <laughs> no. No, I didn't mean selling, selling, selling. No, I just advocating. Yes. Yeah, advocating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On your website, I was looking around a little bit before this, and you mentioned uh, Jules. Like, I think it was a, a model that you've been developing or contributing to yeah. based in Jules. Yeah. I've, when I wanted to register what was back then called Jules, I realized that Jules is actually a really confusing name and people don't really understand what it stands for. And so, yes, I've renamed it now to shallowwaters.jl. This .jl okay. is kind of like a convention in the whole Julia community to just like, if you have a package, in order to make sure that everyone knows immediately that it's a Julia package, you just call it .jl in the end and like one of the conventions. And I think there's a lot, just like calling things what they are is also one of these core philosophies of Julia. And I, I really like that because... I've came across quite a few other models and they have these like huge acronyms. You have no idea what, what, what like a variable stands for, right? If you just have these like super cryptic variable naming, it makes it really difficult for other people to understand your code and to get into your code. And so, yes, one of the steps then that I did is I renamed Jules to, to shadowwaters.jl. And yes, this is basically what my kind of almost toy model it's a bit more it's a bit more sophisticated than a toy model but it was basically it's basically my test bed in order to to play around with the things that i actually look at in, in, my, in my phd which are different different ways to represent numbers in a climate model and yes that's what I ask you about i'm glad that came up yeah po posits right with yeah so there's 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 a lot of different ways to do that and i think uh in order to give uh, the people that will listen to this podcast at some point to give them kind of like a little overview. Um, I find it, I find it super, I, it's actually really interesting that a couple of decades ago, while these computer scientists, mostly based in the US, they came up with these standard floating point numbers, right? And so this, this whole idea of like, okay, how do you represent real number in terms of bits? So like zeros and ones and, um, well, at some point they they just agreed on okay, let's have like two to the power of some exponent, and then times a significant that is a value between one and two, because that was somehow easy to put into silicon, 
and people said like okay let's let's somehow agree on this way how we put it into into silicon let's let's uh, derive the standard for that um basically everyone's since then for like 30 40 years everyone stick to that right because it's a standard no one does something differently so like no matter whether you look at your phone at your computer they basically they're all based on these floating point numbers i think right. now sorry I was just saying, right, it's a convention. It was a, a decision. Exactly. It made sense at the time. You know, people were able to justify it. But exactly. you know, it's nice to revisit those old assumptions and see if you can do things in a different way. Yes, exactly. And this is where now in the last years, basically, there was um, there's quite a, quite a movement of um, looking into would it not make sense to have other ways of encoding your real numbers into your uh, into your bits on a, on a climate model. I mean, I find it sometimes interesting to to compare this really to to data compression. Many people have more of an idea of data compression because you have like you use, for example, like a a big uh, data set of like ocean temperatures, or you, you look at um you look at like like sea level pressure, and you have like all these different fields that basically contain a lot of numbers. And the question obviously is like, how can you compress that as best as possible to, to send this data around, uh, but also in the same time to, to analyze it quickly. And um, there's a lot of things that happened around data compression, but basically the aspect of how can you compress the data on the computer while it's still computing is, is kind of like a question that was left out. And I think this is basically a question now that comes up and, really ask this uh, ask from from almost more information theory point of view which are the bits that we actually need and can we somehow make sure that we use all the bits in a in a um yeah in a, in a in a sophisticated way such that we don't need to calculate the bits that are actually not necessary and supposits is one of these um one of these new formats that was proposed a couple of years ago by a researcher that is based in, in Singapore usually and posits is basically the next more complicated uh, step away from away from floats. So they basically just extend the idea of floats with this like two to the power of an exponent times um, times your significant by introducing regime bits. And so what it basically what it in the end what it just means is that that you put more precision around numbers that uh of that are of the order of one and you have less precision for the very very large numbers which is not something that floats do so floats if you if you want to represent with 64 bit floats if you want to represent a number you will always get your 15 16 digits accuracy no matter whether you look at one point blah 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 or whether you look at the number that is uh well in this of, of the size of 10 to the 300 there you can actually see that there is um there's almost like a conflict between the physics and between the computer science because the computer scientists said like okay this is a nice format that lets us represent a whole bunch of numbers with a really big range but it's not really taking into account the numbers that we're usually facing when we look at physics problems meaning that the way how we write programs we usually tend to produce numbers around one, which is quite natural because if we look at an astrophysics problem, people would probably write their, uh, write their algorithms to be based on uh, astronomic units or parsecs or light years, whereas people that look at two like microscopic scales, they would probably use micrometers as a, 
as a, as a unit. And so you always end up with a number that is of the order of one, like a numerical value that has the, has the value of one. That's right. Yeah, the first uh, area that I worked in a, a little bit, just as an undergrad and uh, for a, a bit of grad school, was uh, astrophysics. And the, the professor that I was uh, studying with, absolutely, that's how all of his code was written. Everything was scaled such that, you know, even though he was simulating galaxy formation over billions of years, everything was scaled such that the numbers were about one, yeah. <laughs> you know, just non-dimensionalized. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I saw you talk about, about this in, uh, at the Challenger Society meeting in Edinburgh this past year, and, and I thought it was a really good talk. And I, I wanted to tell you my, my kind of feeling went away from it, uh, the, the thought that I had, you know, going away from it. And you can tell me if this is a, a correct message or not is is basically what you're just saying i just wanted to try to say it a different way and, and to, to maybe look at it from a slightly different angle that are you basically saying there's a whole lot of bits that we're kind of not using that we don't necessarily need to use so there's there's like a fundamental inefficiency here of hey we we actually could be you know calculating these values which have like you said been scaled mostly around one to where we could ask this question of like, which bits do we actually really need? How many do we really need all 64 of them for every calculation or can we get by with way, way fewer? Is that a fair kind of take home? Uh, I guess that was the kind of premise, the kind of question that you kind of opened the talk with, if I remember right. Yes. Yeah. I think at some point there was just an email sent around by my supervisor like, hey, there's this talk on YouTube. Uh, someone want to have a look at it and like present it next 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 week in our group meeting that was really the starting point for me like looking into to to alternative ways of putting numbers into into bits well since they basically then spend a year testing posits in applications that uh, we usually have and it turns out i mean the the the, the answer is basically that posits are in our applications better they are a little bit better but they're not necessarily they're not necessarily the big game changer because the problem still is that floating point numbers um there have been i mean decades of research of how to put how to add two floating point numbers in and people have baked that into silicon right so you have that on a cpu and exactly this way how how you add all these all these bits together is done in a very efficient way on your computer in, in, in every single second. However, for posits, there's not really hardware support out there yet. So there's you can't really go to a supercomputing vendor and say, like, can I have a posit supercomputer? At the moment, that doesn't really work. And uh, this is, I mean, this is the big question, whether because everyone got so locked into these floating point formats, whether um, there will be actually another format that can drag the floats down from their throne. And I think it's, uh, uh, and the question then also is obviously, is, is it really worth it? There are still lots of developments in terms of, especially in terms of machine learning. And I actually, we're, we're benefiting here a lot from the whole machine learning community because the, the machine learning community faces similar problems than we do. So they don't, they also don't need as much precision as we need and so they're basically going down from 64 bit to 32 bit to 16 bit and for us the question is therefore often can we make use of the hardware that machine learning meaning google 
Facebook, IBM, and so on, what they're developing, can we make use of that for our own models? And can we somehow, do we have similar similar challenges in our algorithms and our programs that we use that also the machine learning community faces and i've realized in the last two years this is this this tends to be more and more the case and so the question is really can we have for example a climate model a notion model that um is very portable meaning that if there's a new hardware coming out a new gpu google is developing these tensor processing units tpu can we have a climate model that where you can simply say like I know that this part of my climate model can run very efficiently on a GPU. Can I press a button so that actually uh, it is then in the end also calculated on this type of hardware? Yeah, so the, the posit from what I'm hearing is basically, you, maybe I could think of it in my, in my basic understanding is like, this is a, a dynamic way to figure out like which bits to, to use. It's a, it's a more, it's, it's a way to make it more efficient. And so your and your your project involved a, a bit of trying that out. And so, how how did you actually go about that challenge? Because you mentioned that this isn't really supported on hardware, so much uh, much hardware that's out there. So, what kind of links did you have to go to to actually try it out? The way how I work is I basically use software emulators for everything. Software emulators meaning that the way how you, for example, add numbers is um, not done on hardware. You basically you write this down directly in software of like, I have these bits, shift these bits to the right, do like an end or an XOR computation with these bits and then shift them back to the left. These kind of computations are then done uh, in the software and so that basically means your whole model will run much, much slower because you're software em emulating uh, different number formats. And so in the end, or like while, while I do my research, I don't benefit at all from, uh, from, from, from higher speeds. However, I basically then can test what would different number formats do to the results that our models are uh, producing, right? So can I have... Are my, let's say, my forecasts in a, in a weather forecast model still as reliable as before using only 32 bits or 16 bits, right? Because if you want to go down with your bits, you definitely you don't want to end up in a, in a situation where you're actually sacrificing some of the accuracy of your, of your model. This is actually now a point where we come back to the, to the whole Julia language because Julia is one of the, these languages, and this is why I'm so happy that I started uh, working with Julia, is because Julia has, a, has another programming paradigm that is around this whole idea of type flexibility. So that means that if you write, a, if you write an algorithm, if you write part of your code, you wouldn't say um, a variable A is equals to 1. Um, so really like literally writing 1. So you usually... It, it motivates you to write code in a way that you say a equals the function one of type t so that whatever type you want to have in the end you can you can literally put this in as a as a variable you can say like execute this model using this type and then julia will realize that you don't put in 64 bit numbers you put for example 16 bit numbers or whatever number format you want to have, and it realizes, oh, here I'm supposed to take the one element of this number type, which can be 
which looks different depending on which uh, number format you look at, and then basically starts to compile the language around this. So in the end, you write code in a much more abstract way because the compiler understands this, um, how you've abstracted your code. It will basically translate it back into your number format, whatever you put in in the beginning. That means that um, so my so the the shallow water model that we've been talking about shallow water jail is for example is entirely fl type flexible. So one of the the first argument of calling shallow waters um, is your number format. And um, mm. if you want to, people could now come up and say like I have developed a new number format. Um, the number format has. Uh, plus, minus, times, divide defined. It has a one element, it has a zero element defined. It has some conversions to other formats defined, and you can just plug it in. And it is really like, that. for me, that really made research like a, like a plug-and-play experience almost. I define a new number format, I plug it into my model, I press play, and see what the result is. Uh, that's very cool. You, you are, it does put you in this interesting position where you are having to think about things that... Honestly, most ocean modelers and climate scientists and like even people who use numerical models and you know, computing every day, they don't necessarily think a ton about the number format. So it, it has given you a very unique perspective, I think. You know, I don't think there's many other people who have spent as much time thinking about uh, number formats as, as you. You're, <laughs> yeah. you've a very interesting expertise along that avenue. Um, so I... I I don't want to cut you off if there's more things you want to say about posits and 16-bit stuff uh, or the, the kind of you know flexible number format. But I was kind of curious about how you ended up at this interesting intersection between you know, the intersection of kind of climate science, oceanography, and this specific kind of computer science. I mean, you, you mentioned that, it, that an email went around. Is that the... Have you been interested in that intersection for for a long time, or is that something that you can see a, a thread of, you know, uh, if you kind of say, "Oh, I've, I've been," you know, <laughs> yeah, kind of curious about that element of it, or was it really just more of a, a an interesting opportunity appeared in in, uh, in an email one day? Yeah, no, I think uh, so. So you're totally right. My personal climate science journey really started uh, it's well almost the other end. Yeah, it's, I think at some point I was interested in climate science, so I started studying meteorology and physical oceanography. Like during my master's, I went on like research cruise. Uh, I spent a winter in, in Svalbard doing like actual like meteorology field work. So like literally driving out there with a the snowmobile, putting up weather stations, taking them down, analyzing the data and so on towards more looking into um, ocean models. How can we make ocean models better? And that kind of pushed me to this edge of like what is actually happening on the computer science side of it. Yeah, then I basically came across this this PhD project that I'm now involved with, uh, really being on this intersection of climate modeling and computer science and how from a computer science perspective we could make climate models more efficient. But uh, I've definitely not started with that uh, right in the beginning. And I mean, if you've asked me 10 years ago, I would not have said like... Uh, this is this is necessarily what I want to work with. I always always had some kind of tendency towards um, more like the the geeky computer science way of looking at looking at things and kind of programming was always something that uh, I found 
rather easy than uh, other methods in, in our fields. But yeah, so I basically just ended up in that and kind of like got dragged more and more into into computer science. And uh, I'm actually really enjoying it because I'm a bit scared that I would, would have been bored if I stayed too long onto a very specific topic. And I know some people mm. do that. And I mean, they get, they get really impressive experts in their specific field. But um, I think there's this whole new generation coming up of people that are actually like looking a little bit into this, looking a little bit into that, and then working on, 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 on different parts of, uh, of, the, of the bigger problem, meaning we want to understand our climate science system. Yeah, uh, that's a good point about um, that makes me think that as, as we move into this online paradigm that we talked about is maybe some of those effort barriers are lowered that we might see more people with a background like that who have tried a bunch of different things and have thought about a bunch of different things because hopefully they've been able to really engage with those concepts and those tools like Julia and like Pangeo, for example. They've been able to do that for a long time, you know, even like kind of as an undergrad or maybe even in high school that they've been trying out and thinking about different things just because all of, all of those, it's more open and the effort barriers are, are down that have been lowered a bit. So that's an interesting, that's an exciting possibility. I guess everyone will have to figure out a good way to, to, to kind of pick a direction, pick a, and their direction might not be very linear. You know, that your direction might be, Oh, I've picked up a bit of this along the way, a bit of that along the way. But that's that's great. That's how you get somebody with a new perspective because their perspective comes from their particular pathway into science. And um, that pathway comes from, it's a function usually of interest and opportunity. Now, what, what am I interested in and what opportunities are there along the way to dig into that? Yeah, it sounds like you've got a good handle on what you're interested in and, and what you want to explore. So where where did you uh, where what's your pathway before Oxford? Where were you? Um, I did my so before Oxford, I did my masters in Kiel in Germany. Um, so at the Institute Geomar. Um, so where I did my um, master thesis on yeah ocean modeling. I did a bit more like stuff towards like eddy parameterization and how you can uh, parameterize eddies uh, in a more efficient way in in, in an ocean model. And uh, that's also where I did my my undergrad. But then in between, I uh, spent a year with Erasmus in in France, in Brest, in Brittany, uh, and also went to went to Norway for a winter to get a bit of a feeling of what's happening in the Arctic. And so I, I um, participated in this in this course on um, the Art Arctic atmospheric boundary layer. That was a short course. Yeah, it was like. Uh, two months, basically. Two months. Yeah. Okay. So a good time, enough time to really get some sense of the place. Yes, exactly. And, and yeah, is it Germany? Is that where you grew up? Yes, exactly. So um, I grew up in Hamburg, uh, but actually never managed to have any projects involved with the famous uh, Max Planck Institute in, in Hamburg. So <laughs> yeah. somehow, somehow got around that. <laughs> that. That can happen. Yeah. I, I've been I've been there. I've been to Hamburg um, a couple of years ago. I was visiting a friend working there, and uh, it's a, it was a nice city. We stayed in a, in a little temporary accommodation, mm. and you know, I enjoyed just walking around. And it was you know, really, really clean and really pleasant, and you know, lots of good places to eat. Uh, were you in in the city growing up, or outside of the city? Or? No, fairly central. Um, 
yeah, so fairly central, small flat. Actually, yeah, university was super close. And I mean, Hamburg in general is a very centrally organized city, which like is in contrast to cities like Berlin, which more feel like a like an accumulation of small smaller cities into one 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 bigger. But Hamburg is is fairly central. Yeah, so you had a pretty urban yes urban uh, childhood. Yeah, I basically went from the from the bigger cities to the to the smaller ones, and uh, every time I moved somewhere else, I went to went to a smaller place. And now Oxford, with uh, what is it, one hundred sixty thousand people, is definitely yeah. on the lower end. Yeah. On the lower end, yeah, I was I'm kind of fascinated by that by like people who grew up in really big cities because I grew up just absolutely in the middle of nowhere. I, I mean, I guess when you're growing up, you know, the, what's in front of you is what's in front of you. But I guess there were times growing up when I felt kind of frustrated by being out in the middle of nowhere with no good access to anything. And I kind of imagined like, oh, if I had grown up in a city, you know, I could have explored this and explored that. And, you know, and that's that's fine. But uh, I guess uh, I'm sure there's advantages and disadvantages to, to both, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know how how much, you know, did you actually find yourself really like exploring the city much when you got a little bit older? Were you able to go, go around and kind of have that freedom? Yeah, totally. I mean, both my parents were really totally on the side of like, you have a bicycle, just go and do whatever you want. But, uh, yeah, the whole party area in Hamburg was also not that far. So I definitely spent a lot of times during my A-levels um, there checking out like, one club or the next <laughs> um yeah. to to be yeah. fair to say a levels in germany i did that when i was 19 so it's not like in the uk that you um that you're then uh, not even 18 and you already go clubbing no that's what, what, not what i'm talking about yeah they do them really young here don't they yeah it's uh yeah because i i went through the u.s system and it's a, a very very different uh, beast and yeah they're, 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 they do them really really young and uh, I don't know how people decide what they want to study when they're this young. It's kind of striking to me because I feel like I didn't really know what the heck I wanted to do until I was you know, a good bit older than than the age of the the people are in the UK when they take the A levels and things. But uh, but yeah, so you 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 were an adult already. It was your point, like you, that, you know, when you had to sort all that out, you were already yeah. into in your adulthood. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, that it's been really interesting to talk to you i uh thanks for pressing through the technical difficulties no, that don't we worry. yeah patience. and is there anything else you want to talk about or anything else you want to to get out there um not necessarily i mean there's there's definitely a couple of things we touched upon that uh, i found very interesting talking about but where also my expertise is unfortunately is, uh limited so i can't necessarily say that much about it <laughs> but yeah hmm. Yeah, we touched on a, touched on a lot. Your virtual conferences, Julia. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a little bit about your pathway there. Yeah, we covered covered a good bit, and uh, in a relatively short, you know, amount of time. Yeah, I mean, maybe to close this, I find it, I find it now actually really enjoyable to live in a small city like Oxford, because um, I think if I like looking at the coronavirus and the potential lockdown of London, I. I'm I'm so happy that I don't live in London because it's I think it would be yeah London would feel much more like a prison than a place like Oxford does because I can just like go here to the next park walk over the bridge and I'm somewhere in the countryside and 
that's that's not something that is that you can you can do in these uh, Corona times in in London, right? Yeah, that's true, and that uh, that makes me feel some, some sympathy, concern for the folks who are there. So if you're in London listening to this, I hope you're doing all right. I hope you're I hope you're doing <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm. Uh, hopefully they have. I mean, there are places in London that have decent access to green, big green spaces, but I do see your point. You know, it, 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 if you're in certainly the more urban bits of it, it could really feel like you're like you're locked down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're out in a, a village outside of Cambridge where we are, so we've got pretty decent access to you know wide open spaces and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. we haven't really been going to playgrounds. I don't know if that's that might still that might be uh, questionable, possibly. <laughs> Uh, but general parks you know general just like open green spaces that that could make sense yeah. Yeah. good well milan thanks very much for your time again yeah thanks dan this was a great opportunity it's my first podcast that i've uh that i ever did and uh well now i definitely have a reason to 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 listen to all the other climate science scientists podcasts so I've, yeah. I've i've looked into i've uh, listened to into a few of them uh when you said it so just yeah. uh just before we, I had a um, had a quick look into the one with uh, Susan Lozier, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, um, uh, I really like this project. It's great. Oh, great! I'm glad you enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and thanks for being a guest, and yeah. thanks for being open and taking the, the time and sharing. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you that you keep doing this, and I mean, especially podcast is uh, I think it's a great format for the times we're currently in, right? Because you can do it from, from anywhere. You can listen to it anywhere. And uh, it's it's a great alternative to people just sitting in front of Netflix. Yeah, I think you're right. And also, I mean, part of what I wanted to do with this podcast and part of my idea behind it, you know, we were talking about lowering those effort barriers and lowering some of those participation barriers. And I feel like, maybe a generation ago or maybe just a few years ago, one of the barriers to even kind of imagining yourself in science or doing science was that it was too easy to imagine a scientist as somebody like way up on a hill that you can't, you know, oh, they're in a fortress. I have no access to them. They're in the classic, you know, ivory tower. uh, And they're some kind of bizarre superhuman figure. And, you know, when I got into science and started studying it as a student and started you know, as a grad student, kind of working as a research assistant, I was really just struck by the sense of like, right, no, we're just, we're people. You know, scientists are just, just humans, mm-hmm. just doing their thing. And of course it sounds, it is obvious and it sounds obvious in hindsight, but I wanted, I wanted to showcase, or I wanted to like give scientists an opportunity to just kind of be themselves a little bit and to share a little bit of their pathway and their experience in this, in this open format, you know, partly because I thought it would be a good communication exercise, but also to maybe lower some of those barriers a little bit, make make science a little more approachable and a little more uh, relatable in that way as a fundamentally human activity. That's something we are doing. It's something we are using. It's a tool, a set of tools that we're using to try to figure out the world. And the, 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 it happens because people get up, you know, it only happens because people like yourself get up and get to it and they, they put the work in and they put the time in. Yeah. 
I think this is a great point, and it also really goes back to this um, what we talked about in terms of um, accessibility in a in a more virtual science world, right? Because and I just want to mention that again, like I mean, there's so many great open source projects out there, and you don't need to have any kind of science degree. You don't necessarily have to run through traditional university to contribute to these projects. And yes. you can just basically, I mean, even like a project like Linux is hosted on GitHub. So if you have some clue about how Linux is set up, you can just go and uh, contribute your own feature. And at some point, a couple of years from now, your feature may end up somewhere in the uh, in the in the kernel of your of your smartphone. How cool is that? That's very cool. Yeah, that's very cool. And uh, you could imagine the same thing happening to an open source web browser. You know, you could make a contribution to an open source web browser and then sometime down the line it's it's in every tab that you have open potentially, you know, it's running. Yeah, it's exactly. Running the- and I have the feeling that I mean now that these like browsers or like Linux are still very much like computer science based things but i'm actually hoping that this will somehow project also onto science more in more general terms because thanks to the whole virtual world people that are very interested interested in, in certain topics and but are not necessarily experts in that topic and don't necessarily have the existing network to um uh, disseminate their research and on, on something new that they want to try out the virtual world suddenly gives them an opportunity to actually do that right so there was this super famous uh, i don't know whether you whether you looked at this on on medium.com it was this super famous blog article about someone just looking at the at the number of cases of uh, coronavirus and just kind of like extrapolating that into the future and basically s- s- telling governments this is exponential growth where you don't have the information available at the time where the exponential growth is actually like kicking in. No, you have it delayed by something like 10 days. And so the time to act is now. And this was not an expert on, uh, on epidemiology, right? This was just someone who just crunched some numbers and still had a big impact on, on people. And I find that a very interesting, interesting way because it's a network that where not necessarily the, um, not necessarily the experts always say, or like the, like the whole peer review system that we have kind of delays a lot of information and makes it really takes a long time to until something actually ends up in uh, a journal that is then not even accessible because you have to pay fees for it. But I've, I'm kind of like, I really have this vision of a, of a scientific future where we have an idea, we work on a project, we publish the initial draft, we publish that online, and instead of everyone saying, uh, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, the whole manuscript is, uh, is wrong, people basically just say like, this is a good idea, but you have a mistake here. And they can literally just like click on a line and say like, I create a new issue here. Um, this should be this and that, or there should be another reference added and so on, so that you actually have blog articles, manuscripts, scientific articles that are developing life. It's kind of like an even more open open peer review process 
where everyone can really like contribute to that. This like content of knowledge is created on the go and just someone has to just start with it and everyone can contribute. And that kind of paradigm that's really, it is interesting. And that kind of paradigm, I, I wonder, and you, you spoke to this a little bit already about how do you make sure that 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 peer review, that the review is happening is of good quality and is kind of done in good faith because just in, on the conceptual level that you described, I could see some potential for abuse there for people who, for whatever reason, maybe they have a personal agenda or maybe they have a personal, maybe they don't like that author or maybe they are a conspiracy theorist yeah. who, you know, to tackle any, wants to, to delay any potential of government intervention yeah. for dealing with climate change. So I think if, if things are opened up completely, I guess that is part of the equation we'll have to grapple with. You know, how do we, how do we make sure that the information we're using is good information? Mm -hmm. We still need that level of quality control. I think don't, don't necessarily think that we have to step down in terms of quality control and projects like Wikipedia are amazing examples, how quality can be, maintained although you have thousands of authors that contribute to the same article and if you just look at how wikipedia for example structures that where as you as an author you basically get a ranking depending on how much you contribute to wikipedia or let's say if you project that onto the science world you basically as um as an as an as an expert in your field you get a higher ranking so whatever you say whatever comment you give is ranked higher than if there's just like a random person doing it and then wikipedia for example also has this idea of references are not they're not all equal and it depends so there will be certain certain websites for example that are blacklisted by wikipedia so you can't reference to that website as a uh, way of justifying whatever you've written in your in your article on Wikipedia, and so you can think of then a hierarchy of like let's say um, a scientific journal papers have are very high in this hierarchy and being a very reliable source. And you can if you quote that one, then it, it it's it's uh, it's more likely accepted than if you quote something from some dubious websites, right? And so you can think of like actually like a quality. Um, a quality, like a system that maintains a certain quality of articles that is not, I mean, that still is possible to, to, to basically try to attack an article and introduce some false information to it. But if you look at Wikipedia, and there's a couple of examples where I think even some, even some, some, some governments try to change or like institutions that are kind of like linked back to governments, uh, try to change certain parts in Wikipedia articles because everything is locked and you can always see who tried to change what and what kind of new sources they try to introduce. It is because it's such a transparent system. Um, it actually turned out to be, uh, to be possible to detect this introduction of false information and yeah, to make sure that, the, that the, that the articles have a really high quality standard, right? So they have a big, but that is Wikipedia, the folks who you know ha have that kind of under. You know, I'm not saying it's a central set of people, but I mean there are there is a small core team who's responsible for that underlying architecture, right? Yeah. There's a small, and so 
the folks who design that core underlying you know, architecture, they've got a, it's almost a big kind of responsibility or a big job to say, well, we, we need our system to give more weight to pe people who are acting in good faith and sources that are trustworthy. And we need to downweight those sources that are questionable mm -hmm. and try to detect in some way those folks who may, might be acting in bad faith. And mm -hmm. it's, they've, they've obviously thought a lot about it. And you know, they obviously have a, a really great example of a, of a success of how to do that. The transparency is an important part of that, uh, as you mentioned. I, I do think, and this, this might be a silly example, but I, I remember uh, a friend of mine, she submitted a, uh, she submitted, it, it is a very mild, not even a counterpoint, but just as a, something to throw into the mix here. She submitted a journal, uh, an article to an open source EGU journal where the review was totally open. And, you know, one of her reviewers was, was pretty harsh and pretty kind of, kind of critical. And she did feel a bit of panic in that situation because she said, you know, oh, geez, I've got this really, really harsh reviewer that now everyone can see, you know, this very, this extremely critical review. And she, she felt like in the traditional kind of closed system that she would have been protected from that. She would have, well, she would have felt like, oh, I, I only have to manage this between this reviewer and this editor. This isn't going to now be something that's broadcast to the whole community. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, for her, was a very different experience, you know, having to deal with open review um, because b before she would have just had to deal with that reviewer and, th and that editor, whereas in a fully open system, all of your fights, all of your, con you know, potential kind of push, the, the push and pull, the back and forth that you have with your reviewers, it's all, all for everyone to see. There's suddenly an audience. And suddenly there's audience, like a dynamic of having an audience there might play into how your response is. So the, that's, that's not to go against anything you've said. It's just a, a bit that I try to keep in mind when I imagine moving towards this fully transparent world is there will be, there will be shifts and there will be, we will be discovering, I guess, what some of the advantages of the old system might have been. And I guess we can kind of decide case-by-case case basis, or when I say we decide, I mean, collectively, we will decide based on our choices. Um, what, what, what's worth it? Are there any old, are there any parts of the old that are worth preserving? Or are we happy to let some of that go in favor of being more transparent and open and accessible? Um, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting how it plays out. I think in general, I mean, I, I totally agree with your point that um, we basically don't know yet enough about a very open, very transparent scientific peer review, like some scientific review system. But yeah, really like, because we don't really have this experience yet, we are always, we tend to stick to the, the more conservative uh, option, right? And there is no... I mean, we're still in this whole system of like journals and journals compiling some papers into um, a volume that no one ever actually has in their hands. 
And so this whole idea of like putting things together into like, yeah, into, into volumes is basically, it's kind of like a bit redundant these days because it's, it's just about you write something, you get the stamp by some other people in your field that this is uh, accepted research and then it's out there and people can download the PDF, right? And so I'm kind of almost having this idea of like a, like a, like a science Wikipedia where obviously the idea of Wikipedia itself is that it's um, information for, for, for everyone. So it's not necessarily the, the most detailed, newest uh, research. It is something that is like knowledge that is already established. Um, but you can think of like a like a like a science Wikipedia where like just people upload their their their, their manuscripts and then having a system where uh, everyone can 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 look at it and comment on it. And I'm actually I already started using Twitter in a very very similar idea that whenever I write something, whenever I publish something, whenever I create a poster, what I usually do is that I just upload it on, on, on Twitter. And if there's, um, if there's quite a lot of interesting findings, I would then create like a thread of maybe like five, um, uh, five tweets so that you can basically like the five key messages of that, of that, uh, of that research is then summarized and everyone can comment on different things. And I had this experience with, uh, for example, the work that I've done to calculate the carbon footprint of the American, uh, geoscience union from last year in December, uh, where, yeah, I've just put that on Twitter and then suddenly everyone started commenting about it. And yes, you always have these like super harsh criticism in between because some people say like this is all rubbish but just because it's harsh criticism towards you doesn't mean that there's no other harsh criticism to that criticism right so there will be other people and if they have the platform to do so there will be other people joining in and saying like um sorry pete but i don't think that your point here is justified right and so you can basically think of a system where um even these like harsh criticism can be voted up in terms of this is relevant this is an actual relevant point or saying like no there's someone just trying to be a bit harsher than everyone else and you can basically vote it down and say like this is a negligible point that is uh that is not really does not really um is not really important to the to the overall result of the of your research and so i think there's it is you're right there's a lot of responsibility that comes with setting these rules right so like the creator of wikipedia obviously there's a lot of responsibility for on them to define what should the rules be although they're not contributing necessarily in, in terms of content providing content but they're setting the rules right they're setting the rules of the game and um, we as a community obviously they ha we have to make sure that whatever rules we come up with are rules that are um somehow accepted by at least a majority of the um of the whole community um but at the moment we're still we're just like we're basically still stuck in the old system and um no one actually ever forced us to to rethink uh let's say forget how we did research in the last 300 years if we start new from now how would we do it and I think this is where a really big opportunity of the whole uh, coronavirus crisis comes in, right? Because in terms of organizing conferences in presence, uh, co-presence conferences, um, it suddenly forces you to rethink, can we also do it differently? 
And I think this is this is needed in many of these established systems every now and then as like a okay cut. What have we learned from the last decades? Can we do it somehow more efficiently? And are there now is there now technology out there that allows us to do it more efficiently? And this is again a similar philosophy that I've experienced uh, in Julia in the, in the Julia language that you simply say like okay, a couple of decades of scientific computing cut. What have we learned from the from the from the from from all the successful or the non-successful projects and how can we create something that is better that's really good i think you just tied up our whole conversation there with that basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i feel like that tied it up into a, a nice little bow yeah <laughs> good good yeah um well thank you again milan i really appreciate Wonderful. it i appreciate yeah. your perspective and your time so i'll just say uh is there anything else just to, that you wanted to add on there? I'll I'll do a little intro and an, an outro, yeah. and I will you know mention all of your 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 Twitter handles and whatnot. And, yeah, perfect. You know, places. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I mean, also feel free to like I don't know if you if you usually do that to like I don't know cut things in between or so if you find that there's something that is not as relevant for for the audience. Yeah, I I do I don't do very much editing mm -hmm. um, because I'm kind of styling this off of podcasts that I that I really enjoy that I find myself listening to a lot. And that, that style is more conversational. You mm -hmm. kind of you know, leave a lot of it in, even if there's an awkward moment or you, you know, I, I think that's fine. I think we're just showing that we're people and that's how, a, that's what a normal conversation sounds. That's like. true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I totally, I see this, this is a very good to, to actually bring people to, 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 yeah, to make science more accessible and to realize it's not the person on the hill. That's right. Not every statement is super polished and super professional. Yeah. You know, we're all we we try to find our way there, and sometimes yeah. it's getting there looks a little awkward. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes things are are clean and they look look really sleek, but sometimes it's a little more awkward. Yeah, and I'm I'm very happy to put my awkwardness out there uh, on the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Well, uh, take care of yourself. Yeah. Take care in these uh, difficult times. Um, yeah, absolutely. Get get outside when you can, and uh, yeah, it's still bright. <laughs> yeah, at least it's spring. At least the weather's all right and going to be getting getting better. That 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 helps. At least we're not doing this in the middle of winter exactly. when it gets dark at three thirty. Yeah. Yeah. Good, great. Okay. There you have it. My conversation with Milan Kluver, PhD student at the University of Oxford. He mentions on his Twitter bio that he was born at three fifty four parts per million of carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. Um, it's obviously much higher than that now, uh, unfortunately. But there are people who are working to try to help, hopefully, do something to address that issue. Anyway, at Milan Kluver on Twitter, you can find him there, M-I-L-A-N-K-L-O-E-W-E-R, and his website, M-I-L-A-N-K.de, Milan, Milanc, that date dot de <laughs> sorry uh yeah again i hope you enjoyed that conversation and thanks again to milan for volunteering and for agreeing to be a part of it i'm at dan jones ocean follow the podcast at climate SciPod. and uh that i guess that's about it i've got a few more recorded i've got a few more of these coming up i've got conversations that i'm producing with let me see who do i have here let me look at the list Okay, Bella Roll, and I've got Sonia Legg and Rachel McCrary. We've all had 
conversations and I'm going to be producing those and putting them out soon. Okay, take care of yourself. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.